Welcome again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we are speaking to Mark Chiarello, who is a painter, art director, and editor in the comics business. As a painter, he has worked on such projects as Batman Story, Batman Houdini, The Devil's Workshop, and Clive Barker's Hellraiser. As an editor for DC Comics, he co-created Batman Black and White miniseries, for which he received Eisner Awards in 1997, and again in 2003, and fan-favorite series like Solo and Wednesday Comics. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Oh, cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we're going to have Jim start off with kind of the early parts of your life. So Jim, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, Mark, that's what I usually like to do is to start from like birth forward and just get a sense of your relationship with comics as a kid. So I know you were born on Halloween 1960 in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? Central New Jersey, right in the middle in, in Freehold, uh, where Bruce Springsteen is from. Ah, okay. And tell me about your upbringing, like your parents, you know, what, what you, your basic upbringing. Sure. I mean, it's probably going to be boring, but so we'll get to comics really fast. But, you know, I grew up in suburbia, New Jersey, in the 60s and mid, late 60s and 70s. And, you know, like every other kid, I just, you know, my parents were, my dad worked for Ford Motor Company and my mom was a housewife, a homemaker. And, you know, it was just like a normal you know, growing up as a kid, watched television nonstop, you know, repeats of the Twilight Zone and the Brady Bunch and Mary Tyler Moore, you know, just a regular kid, really. And I always, you know, I drew in my room all the time. You know, I was kind of a quiet kid and kept to myself a lot. And I spent most of my time just sitting around drawing all day. Were you an early reader? Uh, yeah, I, I really was, you know, and it's still something that I do nonstop here. I just love to read. Always have. I hope I always will. I hope my eyesight doesn't go. But yeah, I love to read. And, that, and was it noticeable that you were like a better artist than the other kids at some point? And if so, what point was that? Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a shy guy, so I never really showed my drawings to anybody. You know, I'd never speak up at school and say, hey, look what I drew. I'm just not built that way. But I was kind of singled out as the best or one of the two best artists in this whole school. And then you get to, you know, and then I went to college. I went to Pratt Institute and all of a sudden everybody else is better than you. And it's like, you know. Oh yeah. No, I can't, I can't wait to talk about Pratt because that's interesting in terms of going, I think to even your roommates, but first, when did you start, when did you start actually reading comics? Well, when I was a kid, obviously in the, in the late sixties, the Batman Adam West TV show was so immense that, you know, you just fell in love with that stuff. You fell in love with that show and that character and that world. But I didn't realize that, oh, wait a minute, you could also buy comic books with these characters. You know, and it wasn't until years later, a good friend of mine, a, you know, one of my best friends as a kid, a guy named Mike Hugh Miller, he started collecting Spider-Man comics. And this must be, you know, like 1970 or something. And, uh, I was like, oh my God, these are great. And, you know, and yeah, they were. And I just fell in, I fell in love with that world, you know, like Spider-Man shit John Romita was drawn in. Right. You know, Stan had stopped and I think Jerry Conway started and then Ross Andrew started drawing them. And were you mainly a, a Marvel reader or did you do both? Purely Marvel. I mean, I was before the first you know, that's who I was and, you know, even a, a good friend of mine from high school, a guy named Frank, he was the big DC guy and I'm like, oh, that's such crap. How could you read that stuff? It's so antiquated. Oh my God, it's terrible. Marvel is what you should read because, I mean, think about it. You know, those early 70s, mid 70s, Barry, Barry Smith, Barry Windsor Smith was doing Conan and mm -hmm. Howard the Duck was real fun and 
you were coming off all those great years of. Oh you know, yeah, no, I I'm the same up. age as you, and that Steve Gerber, Don McGregor, that Master of Kung Fu with Glossy. There was it was like just a such riches that it's it's amazing what what was being produced during that early seventies period right. all That's over the place. Yeah, the writer the writer editor age of, of Marvel. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it um, showed, man, it was cool. And so. So at some point, when you were going to decide to go to art school, did you have in mind, hey, maybe I'll end up in comics? No, not at all. You know, I was this, again, quiet kid who sat home and drew all day. And, you know, college rolled around. You graduated from high school. College rolled around. And I enrolled at a, at a you know, mainstream college in New Jersey, Fairleigh Dickinson University. And I went for literally two weeks. And I was just miserable. I'm like, I want to be an artist. I don't want to do this shit. I don't want to be a, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant. You know? <laughs> and I actually, I actually quit the school, and you know, I enrolled at Pratt. It's a short, a short layover. And it was like, man, you know, it was like I came home. I hate to use that phrase, but holy shit, I was around all these great artists who were into exactly what I was into. You know, right? It was. But to answer your question, no, I didn't expect to be a comic book artist. My whole thing was. When I was a kid, I would love, there was that publication TV Guide, you know, and you'd get it every week. I'm not even <laughs> sure that they even produce it anymore. But you'd get it every week and it would tell you, you know, what was going to be on that weekend. Oh my God, they're going to show Jaws this week or whatever it was, you know, all the TV shows. But these great, famous American illustrators would illustrate the cover of that. Right. Um, Including you know, Jack Tom Davis. Man, Jack Davis, one of the great, great, greats, you know, Bob Peak, and, you know, all these incredible, Bernie Fuchs, I love Fuchs stuff. You know, so I, as a kid, I would see Time Magazine with these artists on the cover, Newsweek, and, you know, Sports Illustrated used illustrators. On, and that was, I was a bit odd in that I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to do that stuff. I wanted my mom to be able to walk into the drugstore, the, the supermarket, and say, oh, yeah, my son did that painting of Magnum P.I., you know, on the cover of TV Guide. And yeah, I, I used to, to I used to clip them and put them in scrapbooks. I was a TV oh, no. guide nut about no, the exact same thing. Do you still have them? No, I do not. Uh, oh. Probably your mom probably threw them away, huh? No, she was pretty good. I mean, I still have every comic I ever bought. She was not one of those moms. I don't know what happened to the scrapbooks, but yeah, I used to take out everything from TV Guide, especially oh, okay. the drawings. Are you and an especially? Or you just were a fan? I was always, I drew all the time too. I ended up not being an artist. I thought about going to art school, but I went to law school. Oh, okay. But yeah, I can draw a little bit. Um, oh, cool. So you went to, to, and then were your parents supportive when you switched over to art school? You know, my parents have always been lovely. They've always been supportive of, of whatever I wanted to do, but they kind of looked at me sideways like, well, you're going to starve. You're going to be an artist, you know what I mean? Because... You know, growing up in the New York area, you know, Italian parents, mm -hmm. artists were, you know, never, there was that cliche view of the starving artist with the beard and not making any rent. Right. Uh, but then I, you know, right after college, I got a gig, I got a job at Disney and with Disney down in Florida. And they kind of, you know, it was the first time that they kind of thought, well, maybe he is going to make a living because again, you know, the American public knew Walt Disney as, the successful artist, you know? Yeah. yeah. As soon as you had that Disney stamp of approval, everybody relaxed. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. Let's go to Pratt for a few minutes in terms of, I had read that you had, and I, I'm not clear if they were, you were all together, but you were roommates with Kent Williams, John Van Fleet and George Pratt. Is that true? 
Yeah, George lived upstairs, but he was always in, he was on the floor above us, but he was always in our room and we were always in his room. Yeah, but then Philippe and I were best friends and Kent, you know, the four of us were just, oh my God, we were inseparable. It was a really incredible year of artists, just some incredible, incredible people who we're all still in touch with. What year was this, Mark? Oh man, don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> was it 1980 or... Well, Pratt was in in 1980, so it, it, at least that was part of it for sure, because I looked up that. He was yeah, 1981, like 82, right in there, 83, okay. right in there. Okay, early 80s, all right. But man, so, you know, like I said, and I apologize because I know I'm talking really fast, but I just had a really big cup of coffee, so, no, that's so I good. apologize. But, you know, what I was saying about when I got to college, I was among my people, Kent and John and George and a few other guys. We would sit around and we were exactly like each other. We'd talk about, you know, oh, the new Raiders of the Lost Ark movie came out and let's go see Blade Runner. And, you know, we'd go to the magazine shops and look for Brad Holland illustrations. And it was the greatest time. It was really just we were all fraternal. That sounds great. And isn't that amazing that you all had, you know, you all ended up working in comics at some level or not? Yeah. Yeah, because we were, we were all comics fans as kids. Now, were you reading, by that point, were you were any of you reading comics still? Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting time because you had the, what's the, there's a phrase for that time of comics, you know, Rocketeer and Love and Rockets, what's that, what, what are they called? The, not the independent market, but, you know, those kind of not, not, main, not Marvel and DC stuff. Yeah, but, right. well, I mean, they weren't, it, it wasn't the alternative stuff that's out. I mean, that's so, that is so indie, but it was the age of the Hernandez brothers had come on the scene. Dave Sim was doing Cerebus. Chaikin yeah. was doing uh, American Flag. I mean, all of that stuff was out there and was really pretty ground, incredibly groundbreaking and yet accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but you also had, yeah, that's true. We love that stuff. Man, when Rocketeer first came out, those first couple of issues that he did, that Dave did, yeah. it was just beautiful stuff. But you also right. had, yeah, Frank Miller drawing Daredevil at Marvel, and that was right. foolish shit too, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then he goes, switches over and does Ronan, and it's like, look at the production value of that. And you guys must have all been like so aware of that it's no longer on comic paper and looking, you know, like there was so much experimentation in terms of design at that point, which I assume you had an interest in that early on because it's such a feature of your own work. Yeah, yeah, that just turned us on, you know, because we, I think, well, I know Kent was, Kent was, Kent was drawing, when I first met Kent, he was drawing, or when I first moved in with him, he was drawing a short story for, I'm pretty sure it was Epic Illustrated, which Archie ran, which is a good one, and I was just like, oh my God, and look, I'm going to say something, please don't laugh at me, but you're going to think I'm ridiculous, but I never realized people wrote and draw comics, drew comics. I, you know, of course, logically they did and they do, but I, I didn't realize that you could get a job doing that, that these were real people, you know? Right. Uh, you know, and, and I, when I had a roommate who was actually drawing this stuff, it really opened my eyes. And Kent said to me, you know, geez, Mark, you're the biggest comics fan out of all of us. I know this guy at Marvel named Archie Goodwin. You're really very similar people. Uh, the sweetest guy. You should go get a job with him. So that's. Uh-huh. Kind of my first foray into the professional. And that's how you met Archie. World. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's really yeah. interesting. And they so, and they were doing things that looked like what you might see at school. Because I'm I'm thinking of like Moonshadow and what Moose was doing. And and you you guys are looking at stuff like that, right? 
Yeah, well, you know, as roommates, Kent was Kent did a fill-in issue of Moonshadow, and George was George came downstairs, and they were both painting it together in Kent's room. Well, it was astounding. I was like, you know, and I got to know Jay, and I really love his work, and um, it it just I guess that's my point. It showed me that well, people do this. You can do this. You know, right? It's capable. Oh. It's not just a mythical thing. It's a real thing. Exactly. He mystified it for me. Right. All right. So it. I'm, so now, I'm uh, going to take you out of Pratt now and get you in the real world. And Alex is going to take you from there. Okay. So, cool. what, so what, what, what did you do at Disney World when you started there in Florida? Well, I, I started as an intern on this program. They would take a few people every year. And, uh, and I moved down there. And I think they took like two graphic designers, two animators, and one illustrator. And I was the one illustrator. I was picked out of all the art schools in the country. And, you know, and I moved down there. Oh my God, Disney, this is going to be cool. And it really was cool, but I didn't like living in Florida. I was just not, you know, I'm such a, I'm such a tri-state area guy. I'm such a New Yorker that it was like, uh -huh. oh, I hate Florida. Jeepers. Like uh, you felt it was kind of boring, maybe? Well, it was always hot, <laughs> you know? Okay. Uh, you know, so, and uh, one of my, one of my nerd things is the Disney parks, Disneyland, Disney World. So that was fun because I'd go every day after work uh -huh. or for lunch or whatever. Oh, that but other cool. than that, I just I missed home, so I didn't I didn't stay there very long at all, and I moved back up. So what, you were just there for maybe a year or something? Oh, much less, much less, but just a bunch of months. Oh, okay, just a month. And were you doing animation there? You were just you were doing animation basically. No, no, I wasn't in the animation department. I was in the illustration department. And illustration, like okay. Brochures, yeah, brochures for the park or posters for the park. Oh, okay. Uh huh. Yeah. I see, which is certainly a skill that we've seen of yours. Okay, I see what you're saying. So then after Disney, you went up to New York. And is that when you started working on the 1986 Adventures of Galaxy Rangers TV show? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Man, I forgot about that. Yeah, I got I got a job right away. There's not, most of the animation's done out here in California, but there was a show that was being produced in New York called The Adventures of the Galaxy Rangers. It was on... I guess it was on Channel 11 PIX in New York, but uh, it was 65 mm -hmm. episodes, and I was sort of the art director. Oh, know, okay. Cross, but I would also organize everybody else. Mm -hmm. And did you did, would you draw stills as well, or animate things, or was it more like you were overseeing the project? I started. I was hired as a storyboard artist, so we would get the script, and you know it was a half hour animated show, and we would have to storyboard every scene. Uh -huh. You know, and I was doing that, and it was fun. But then my boss said, "Well, you're kind of like the adult of all these twenty storyboard artists. Uh -huh. Why don't you Why don't you organize the whole thing, the art of all this stuff, and get it all together uh -huh. and ship it off to? I think it was animated in Japan, so I would FedEx it to Japan and make sure all the characters were coded and all that stuff. So my seeming maturity kind of elevated me to art director, sort of." Yeah, that's great. So is that when you kind of realize you can be both an artist and manage other artists? Is that your first taste of that? Yeah, I guess it is. I think it is. You know, over the years, I've always had a hard time, you know, because I embrace being the art director so much at DC. I always had a hard time coming home on the weekend and doing any artwork because I was exhausted from the job. Right. But yeah, yeah, I'm really torn. In my, I've always been torn in my head. Should I be an artist or should I organize artists, be an art director? I'm never quite sure. Right. It's kind of a hybrid conflict. So then why did you leave that TV show and how did you get into doing Lost Planet 2 for Eclipse in 87? Is there Was that your first published comic? You know, tell us about that transition and doing that, that comic. 
and that was after college. So we all sort of moved down the street to, you know, Pratt is in Brooklyn. So we all sort of moved, you know, the next neighborhood over to, um, to Park Slope. Oh, okay. Uh, Fleet and I shared an apartment and George Pratt lived around the corner. And George, George was the nicest guy on the planet. Would always have other artists hanging out, staying over. One of the guys he became friends with was Scott Hampton, who was from North Carolina. North Carolina? South Carolina? North Carolina. And Scotty's a cool guy. Scotty's such a brilliant, brilliant artist. And, you know, we really hit it off. And he said, hey, my brother Bo is putting together a comic book called Lost Planet for Eclipse. Would you want to? He knew what we were talking about. We were talking about history, American history all the time. I'm a real big history nut. And he said, hey, there's a story about Amelia Earhart. Would you want to draw it? And I was like, man, cool. Absolutely. You know, it's like a 10-page story, 8-page story, whatever. And he sent me the script, and I was really excited about it. And there was that moment where I got the script, and I was like, holy shit. I have to actually draw this thing now. (laughs) Man, that's frightening because, you know, I'm one of those guys that's one of those artists that feel that, Everyone judges me as a human being based on my art. If they don't uh, like my art, then they're not going like to me, like me. Yeah, that's and, funny. Like you take it personally. Yeah, yeah I, I, and to this day, I really wish I wasn't like that, but I am. But yeah, so I did that, I did that story. It came out okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then what made you go to Marvel? Like your friend who knew Archie Goodwin, was it the introduction that then you got into Marvel? How did that work? Yeah, I was still very close with Kent and, and, and you know, and all the guys, George and, and Van Fleet. And Kent that said, hey, I'm I'm still working for Marvel. I'm doing jobs for him here and there. Go see Archie. I think he's looking for a, an assistant, a secretary or an assistant. So uh-huh. I met a guy named Carl Pott. He said, oh, you know, I have an opening. You want to interview? And I actually didn't get the job. And That you did not get the job. And I went around the... What's that? You said you did not get the job. I did not get the job with Carl, but I went around the corner of the day. I went around, you know, literally down the hall and met with Archie. I said, yeah, oh, I'd love to hire you. You know, if you're a friend of Ken's, then, then absolutely. You know, and we chatted for 10 minutes and, and I got that job. Oh, wow. So I was Archie's. I was, yeah, I was just Archie's assistant for, you know, maybe a year and a half. Ah, that's awesome. So then that's around the time when you were, uh, you had, you had some involvement in what the Marvel Epic imprint graphic novel in 88 someplace strange by Nocenti and Bolton. Is that correct? Yeah, that was one of the, that was one of the books. Archie ran Epic illustrated and it had just ended at that time when I came on. And that time is, I think shooter had just left Marvel. So that's around the time frame, Right. Um, and DeFalco took over Archie, you know, Archie ran Epic, which was the magazine, but then it, it segued into an imprint, a series of comics. And that was a great time for me to kind of step into this because we started doing reprinting the Mobius stuff from France, you know, uh, really right. nice graphic novels, you know, and we did Akira. Yeah, first time it had it had been translated into English. But yeah, the John Bolton book was one of them, and it was just you know it was just such a great a great learning ground. So you were editing some of these books, right? No, I was Archie's secretary. I was Archie's assistant. I'd answer his phone and I would type up scripts that he asked me to. I was just kind of like. You know the all-purpose power tool. I just did whatever Archie needed. I gotcha. Okay, okay. So kind of, so he was editing, but and then you'd kind of you'd assist him in in these processes of of putting these books out. Totally, yeah. And that's where I learned my chops, really. And you know, I have said it before, and I will say it till the day I die. The the fact that I was working with this guy Archie Goodwin was just the most incredible learning experience to this very day. I mean, I have a great dad. But Archie became like my second dad. You know? Oh, that's awesome. 
Oh man, I, you, I'm sure you, both of you have mentioned Archie to people or they've mentioned yes. Archie to you. And Absolutely. Always so we get, we get this in almost every interview. I mean that yeah. he is the person no one speaks bad of. It's, it's so true. It's absolutely so true. He was just the funniest, uh, I won't use the F word, but he was just the funniest guy you've ever met. He was sort of like, I always equate him to the comedian, uh, Bob Newhart. He was Bob Newhart. <laughs> that's oh, awesome. Dude. That's a great analogy. For I me. love right. Bob Newhart. Uh-huh. That's Man, cool. uh-huh. he would have loved Archie. And, you know, and he was a brilliant writer. To this day, I think he's, I think he's probably still my favorite writer ever in comics. It just, his stuff was so adult and it was so... Incredible. And certainly, certainly the best editor ever, ever to work in comics. So the guy, yeah. was, the guy was the so, triple threat. And, and he, knew, <laughs> he knew how to do, like, cater those stories just right for the artist. I mean, what he did at Warren with how he gave Steve Ditko the opportunity to do that run of stories that Ditko did and mm-hmm. Toth and, and all the others. It's like he understood how to write it for those specific artists. He's a real talent at that. You're absolutely right. He was the king of that stuff. Do you feel like he was an influence on you and able to, in being malleable to work with various artists on different projects? Yeah, I don't mean to be corny about it, but he taught me the basics of what I did all those years at DC. You know, uh-huh. I remember, I remember him saying, Mark, here's what you do. You hire the very best talent, the very best guy you can. And I apologize, I use the, I use the term guy to mean men and women, guys and gals. Right, sure, the best uh, artist. the very best yeah, and hire the very best talent you could possibly find, and then kind of get out of their way. Just facilitate them. Make sure the accounting department's not up their ass, or make sure whatever. Let them draw. Let them do what you hired them for. Don't try to tell Bill Sienkiewicz what colors to use. Don't you know? You know what I mean? It, yeah. that, that stuck with me. And all those years at DC, I was there for twenty six years. All those years, you know, it really. The best thing about all those years was that relationship with those artists, being able to talk to Adam Hughes and Tim Sale and not tell them what to do, but just kind of like get them jazzed to do what they do. Right. Yeah. And I think Tim Sale and Howard Chicken told us that about you, that you're very creator friendly and you let them create. And I think that's a mutual respect you guys have for each other, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, we're all into the same stuff. So just have fun with it, really. Right. So now around that time you did, did you do the coloring for the shadow, the Marvel graphic novel shadow where Kaluta returned to the character? Did you color that book? Man, I forgot about that. Yes, I did. They, you know, that old process blue line coloring, you know, that uh-huh. stuff. they printed out the pages on blue line, which is this weird, they print them, they print the artwork as this light blue line work. And then there's an overlay, like an acetate piece of, a piece of acetate with the line work on really arcane, bizarre process and they mike was really late mike was supposed to Kaluta was supposed to ink that book and it was gorgeous but then he was really kind of running very late with it so they got russ heath i believe to ink it mm-hmm. but all the time had been eaten up by those guys so they gave the colors was supposed to be a guy named john wellington he was supposed to color it but he had literally three days to color the entire graphic novel mm-hmm. so john asked me he said hey come sleep over my place for three days we got to work nonstop on this thing. So it was, it was me, Wellington, a guy named Nick Janeshig, and Steve Pusilato, who's still very um, active in comics. Mm-hmm. And the four of us sat there for two, three days and just cranked on it. And I think we did it. We did an okay job considering what we were, you know, that there was a gun to our heads on it. Huh. That's a great book. So yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah. 
So then tell us about Hellraiser. How did you get into the Clive Barker Hellraiser book? And you did a story with Kent Williams, right? No, I don't think I've ever actually worked with Kent. The Hellraiser story I did was... Shit, shit, my memory's gone. <laughs> Man, I, I think Jan Stranod wrote it, maybe. Ooh, oh, okay. Right. Okay, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, and I painted it, I illustrated it, and that was, that. you know, that was... I'm trying. I can't. I, you know, I honestly can't remember how that came about. I, I, I probably was just. I used to hang out in the offices a lot because it was fun. You were young. You were in your twenties, and you right. played baseball in Central. Park. You had done a cover for uh, the issue before it or so, and then you did the one story. Okay. Or at least that's 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 what indicated. <laughs> but it's like you know. I mean, I, I'm sure you've been up to the Marvel and DC offices. It's like you know. It's all editorial and legal and all that stuff. But once in a while, you see, oh, hey, there's there's Frank Miller walking down the hall, and there's Bill Sienkiewicz. You know, I mean, it is like that. And it's awesome. So when an editor sees Bill Sienkiewicz walking down the hall, he'll say, "Hey, Bill, come here. You want to draw this thing for me?" And I think that's how the I think that's how that Clive Barker story came about. Right, right. It's like, uh, hey, Mark, uh, you know, help us out. You want to do this? Yeah. And then you yeah. did some um, covers for the Epic Line books, and you were coloring some Marvel books and some covers, and you worked on some characters like Wolverine, the Punisher, and Moon Knight. Is that that's correct, right? Yeah, I sort of started because I don't have. I never until recently, I never had real faith in my talent. So it's like, oh my god, I have to, you know, again, I have to draw this thing, or so I sort of like. I won't say chickened out, but I I realized that while I'm a really good colorist, I might as well just be a colorist in comics. That's a you can make a lot of money doing that, and it's it's a little like coloring in a coloring book when you're a kid. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of fun, a lot of fun, and a lot less stress uh, unless there's mm-hmm. a killer deadline. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I colored a lot of stuff. I colored um, I colored Wolver- some Wolverine stuff that Buscema drew, John Buscema drew, and some Punisher stuff, and uh-huh. that's what sort of segued into me meeting Mike Mignola because he needed a colorist on a project, and I was considered one of the better colorists. Right. Was that the Bram Stoker Dracula? No, it was um, Walt Simonson wrote this Wolverine graphic novel, something jungle, like jungle tales, jungle something, you know, uh-huh. Wolverine in the jungle. And Mike drew it, Mignola drew it, and uh, Mike asked me to color it, and I did. It was Again, it was on blue line, so it was kind of painted color. Uh-huh. And we really hit it off. We had a um, and, and we worked together for quite a few years after that. No, oh, that's awesome. So that's kind of how that started that relationship off. And why did you leave Marvel? Like, what year was that? Was that like uh, early 90s at some point, right? Like, was it 91 or so, 92? When and why did you leave Marvel? Yeah, definitely late 80s, early 90s. Um, I think I wanted to be a freelancer. I, you know, uh, I, I was asked several times by DeFalco and Mark Rumwald if I wanted to come on as an editor there. And I kind of didn't really. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to try my hand at, well, okay, can I do this? Mm-hmm. You know, when I was young and dumb and having fun being in New York. And like I said, you'd go up to the to the office. And I met my best friend, Jack Morelli, up there, who, who was a big Marvel letterer, letterer at the time. And we would hang out. And, you know, you're young. You're really not looking at your career very much. Like, where, where should it go? Uh-huh. Which is a good segue to what my next question is, which is, where did you go next? Was it, you did a few projects with Minola at that point, besides what you had done with Marvel. You, you did the Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992 for, that was for Tops, right? That was Tops, yeah. Tops were purely known as a, as a trading card, baseball card, non-sports card company, and they wanted to get, because comics were really, that was, that was the Jim Lee Liefeld image days, and 
comics were the thing. And Tops wanted to get, you know, start their own imprint of comics. And I don't know how I, I so their first book they signed on was with Mike to adapt, this is four or six issues, to adapt uh, Francis Ford Coppola's movie Dracula. And mm-hmm. he did a beautiful job. And then IDW just re-released that. And Mike asked me to color it, and I did. And, I, you know, I, I'm always on time, and I'm, you know, I like to think I'm fairly pleasant to work with. So I hit it off with one of the big shots at Tops, this guy named Ira Friedman. And I started sort of consulting with him, you know, like, hey, who should we hire to be our editor-in-chief? And, you know, he'd ask me all these questions. So, yeah, and, and you know, unfortunately, Tops was fairly short-lived as a comic publisher, but they did right. pretty fun stuff. Yeah, that, uh, that Dracula really has some, I think, more import than people realized at the time. It's, it has some staying power because it's great. Mignola, I mean, he, I think he really evolves during that period really quickly because that's everything that, that uh, Hellboy is. It's right there in that book. I had a question about the re-release. Did you look at the black and white version that came out? I picked it up at a comic shop. I, they were going to send me a couple copies, and I'm really good friends with Scott Dunbeer at IDW. And he said, oh, I'll send you a bunch. And I'm like, Scott, I got way too many comics in my house. Just, you know, please don't send it to me. But uh, <laughs> Scott had asked me to, because that was, that was actually pre-computer. That was like the very end of, right before everybody was coloring comics on computer. That was, that was color guides where you, you would color on Xeroxes, photocopies, right. and... You'd have to code every color. God, it was a pain in the ass. So he asked me, hey, you know, we're going to re-release this. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, the coloring's awful on that. You know, it's so clunky. It's, it's, you know, he said, well, if you want to tweak the colors, for, you know, I'd send you the files and you could just kind of like, you know, recolor it or tweak what's there. And I'm like, yeah, that'll be cool. And I did like, and again, I was working at DC at the time. This was just a year ago, a year and a half ago. And I was like, yeah, oh no, I'll recolor the entire thing. And you don't, I won't charge you, no problem. And then I started doing it and I was like, what the fuck did I just get myself into? Yeah, you don't charge for that. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, I, unfortunately I had to have a tough phone call, but I had to say, man, I, Scott, I just can't do this. I just don't have the time to do this. I have a full-time job. And he had right. to study one of the great guys. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think, so You so at some point you just, and, and that's why they decided to put it out in black and white instead? Well, it, uh, I think, you know, Mike's, Mike's the master of black and white. Uh, so they, I know they wanted to release it in black and white, and then the color one just came out. So I think they were, had always planned to re-release both versions of it. Oh, I see. Yeah, I thought it was weird that, that that came out in black and white, and From Hell is coming out now in color. And it's like, do you have any feeling about that in terms of if it's drawn with the notion that it's going to be colored, is that different for an artist than if they know it's going to be released in black and white? Man, that's an interesting question. Every artist is different. Again, Mike Mignola is the master of black and white. I can't think of anybody in the history of comics that comes close to him. And that's quite a grand statement, but... Right. I love seeing Mike stuff in black and white. You know, Mike has over the years has given me a few pieces of original art. And man, I, you know, I loved coloring Mike's stuff. It was really fun. And Dave Stewart, who colors most of Mike's stuff now, does an incredible job. One of the great colors. Oh, we're going to talk about Dave Stewart when we get to solo. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Do you like seeing the black and white stuff? Yeah, I think it really depends on, on the artist. I know I've looked at the, the From Hell stuff 
and it's being done so carefully and so great. At the same time, it's like, I just, I think it's what you see first sticks in your mind and it's hard to go to a different one sometimes. <laughs> yep. That's you know, true. that's it's what like I would Runner, say. You know, everybody cries about the narration in Blade Runner, but that's the way I first saw it. So that's, yep. that's what Blade Runner should be. That's right. Once it imprints, it's very hard to get it out of your, uh, out of your head no matter what. So you also did a Legends of Dark Knight with Mignola as well in 1993 at the same time that you did the, the Houdini book that Alex is going to talk about. But the next, in 1994, that was a huge deal because there you did the one that everybody knows, which is you colored the Hellboy book, uh, Seed of Destruction. Now, how essential were your coloring choices to what has become, you know, such a unknown book? I mean, it's not like you said to Mignola, hey, why don't we make him red, right? Yeah. <laughs> there was there was already a notion of what he looked like, or did you, how much did you contribute to all of that? Well, I'll call it cor- Corning Star. Mike and I were very close pals. He had moved to Brooklyn, and we lived down the street, and we used to go to lunch. And I remember he, um, you know, was home freelancing, and he was home freelancing. So we would meet down the street at the diner all the time. And he take, he took out his sketchbook, and he said, literally said, hey, I just came up with a new character. I'll show you my drawing. I call him Hellboy. And I looked at him, and I said, Mike, that's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I think I was probably wrong on that, you know, and he asked me about that all the time. But um, he asked me to color it, and he gave me, you know, and I'm kind of, you know, I don't like working with my friends, and, you know, I always get fights with my friends and that you work with, and, and we actually, unfortunately, we did end up getting in a big fight a couple of years later, but we made up. But, uh, oh, okay. You know, Mike really wanted me to color it, and I was sort of on the fence, and, and he gave me this gorgeous Kevin Nolan original cover from a Batman, I forget which Batman book, you know, he said, I'm giving you this, but you have to color Hellboy. And I was like, yeah, Kevin Nolan, shit. I'll, okay, you got a deal. So, um, you know, he start, had started working on a couple pages and he showed me, you know, the character design. And I said, I think we should make him red. And Mike looked at me and literally said, gee, you fucking think? You know, <laughs> so, yeah, okay, Mike was always going to make him red. But I think I was officially the first person to say that. So I like <laughs> cocktail parties. I like to say I'm the guy that made Hellboy red. There you go. That's pretty cool. That's funny. All right. Mike, so Mike, Alex, Mike knew exactly um, what he was doing. I mean, you know, Mike really, you know, and Mike would, and you know, those early days, Mike would, so we would go through the drawings and Mike would go, you know, like rifle through the drawings and say, okay, I paid seven. That's got to be nighttime, not daytime. And then he'd go through another 10 pages and go, oh, make that little thing yellow. But the, his notes were incredibly light. So, you know, what you saw on those pages was really my color. No, oh, that's awesome. So shortly after or closer to that time, you also worked on Batman Houdini, The Devil's Workshop, and that was 1993. It was written by Howard Chaikin and John Francis Moore. So how did you come to that project? I Somebody introduced me to Chaikin, and he scared the shit out of me right from, right from the get-go. Yeah. <laughs> he's a pretty daunting guy. He's, uh-huh. way too, he's the smartest guy in the room always. Yeah. But we, we became friendly and... I said to him, hey, I want to do this character. I'd love for you to write it. I want to draw it. There was a character. I forget the name of the company, Canadian company, I think. The character was with Mr. X, called Mr. X. And uh-huh. I really loved the character in the first couple issues. The, the you're you're talking Mr. X, the Dean Motter? Yeah. 
from Vortex that, that Hernandez started on. Oh, that's great. I, and yeah. it's, it's totally carries over a little bit to Terminal City when you're doing those covers. But yeah, I, I was a huge fan of that book. Yeah. I mean, again, that was that time. I think that was that time period of, you know, Love and Rockets and the, and the Rocketeer that was, that stuff came out. I just loved, there was something about the character I loved, you know, it was that film noir and kind of science fiction-y weird dream state kind of thing. And I went to Howard and I said, hey, let's do this character. And he's like, yeah, totally, we can do it. I've got some great ideas. But then we just couldn't get the rights to it. And I was, I tried and I tried and I tried. And, uh-huh. you know, um, so then, uh, you know, plan B was either Howard said to me or I said to Howard, well, let's do Batman instead. Let's make some money instead of do Batman. So he was, his writing partner at the time was John Moore, really good writer. And so the three of us did that. Yeah. Oh, did the cool. Batman and again, I'm a big history fan. So I said, you know, man, I'm a real big magic fan. I'd love to do something with Houdini. So Howard just put it in his brain. Ah, that's awesome. So in illustrating that book, what were your influences on that book? And what kind of uh, aesthetic were you going for? I loved it. I actually reread it the other day. Tell us a little bit about your, your visual construction of that book. Man, I try not to think about that book. I, <laughs> my ex-wife and I moved up to Boston. She was going to Harvard for her master's. So we moved all the way up to Boston from New York. And right at the time where I got the contract to do Batman Houdini and man, 64 page again, you get the script and you're like, holy shit, I have to draw this thing. How am I going to possibly do this? You get the script and you kind of freak out. I'm not a comic book artist. I'm an illustrator. So like the first page is, a, is an establishing shot of the flower building in New York at, on 23rd Street. Well, I can draw that. I can paint that. I know how I know what that should look like. So I did this. I did the first page fully painted watercolors and I had been feeling kind of crappy for a couple of weeks. I was getting really bad headaches. And so I did the one page, but I was on the road to, okay, I, I guess I could probably pull this off. And I went, you know, my wife at the time said, you're getting these headaches. Let's go to the doctor. And so we went to the doctor that afternoon. The doctor ran MRIs and CAT scans and sure. Oh, okay. had a brain tumor. Wait, so, that you had a, you did have a brain tumor? I had a brain tumor. Yeah. So oh, okay. I fortunately was in Boston. And so I went to Boston Mass General, which is a great, is a great, hospital uh-huh. and you know and it all they did the operation blah 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 you know i recuperated that's 25 years ago uh, so it was like a benign glioma type deal exactly exactly but it was pretty rough you know i mean they have to enter your skull and all that stuff but yeah create yeah the craniotomy sure exactly yeah not to get off on a weird tangent but the point is so i i had started that batman book and i didn't get back to it for almost a year because i recuperation for that is six, eight months at the mm-hmm. least, mm-hmm. you know, but I, you know, what's funny is oh God, I hadn't thought about this. I remember I finished the page. I finished that first page and it came out good. And I turned to put it next to me on the table and there was an exacto blade, an exacto knife next to me. And I jabbed it right in my finger by mistake, uh. you know, being a clot. So I just went, Oh, and I was bleeding all over the place. And I took the original the painting, the original piece of art, and I wiped my finger on the back of it, and there was uh, a big blood stain on the back of it. Uh, you know, when I found that page just maybe like three months ago in my flat file, and I'm like, yeah, the blood's still on the back of that, and I think it was a symbol for what was to come for the next year. Oh, wow. That's wow. a pretty, that, that's pretty dramatic that's imagery. Story, yeah. uh-huh. No, I like it. That's, I mean, it's interesting. So you received a lot of notice and accolades for that. So um, you do describe that there was some struggle as far as the difference between illustration of one image and then sequential storytelling of a series of images. But I think a lot of people felt like 
you really hit it. You really hit it out of the ballpark. So was it from notice of your achievement with that that then you became part of DC staff, or, or were you a freelancer for a while? What was that transition as far as job title over at DC? I was so unhappy with what I did on that book, the way I my stuff came out on that. That uh-huh. I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to be an artist. You know, I've got to look for a real job. I just I can't, you know, because I was so hard on myself, you know, and which a lot of artists are, but I was ridiculous about it. Like, I'm a, you know, I'm a laughing stock. I'm a charlatan. People are going to just think I'm an awful artist. Huh. Uh, and right at that time, I got a call from a guy at DC Comics named Neil Posner, who unfortunately has passed away since, you know, and he said, hey, you know, the coloring at DC Comics, you're one of the best colors. The coloring at DC Comics is really in awful shape. We're just transitioned over to using computers and the separators are terrible. Would you come on and be our color editor? And I'm like, Neil, there's no such thing as color editor in comics. And he goes, yeah, you'd be the first color editor. In, in <laughs> and I said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And I took the job and stayed at DC for 26 years. What year was that? Was that like, it was in the 90s? But what, what do you think what year closely was that? I remember my first, I don't, again, I'm terrible with dates because I'm an artist and math is hard. I remember my first week at DC, Batman Houdini was on the printing press. I went up to Canada to see it printed. So whenever Batman Houdini came out was when I first started. It's 93, I think. Yeah, yeah that sounds uh, right. So that's when you became staff and color editor. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I was color editor for like two years and then I really hit it off with, you know, the people I was working with and Paul Levitz, who was running the show. Uh-huh. Um, so he kind of made me art director. Yeah. Pretty quick, and that's, pretty that's art and design director, right? Well, I was, I was color editor. Then I was art director. Then I was art and design director. And then I was art director, design director, and collected editions editor director uh-huh. at the end there. I see. Yeah. That's an interesting sequence, but you also worked on covers in the, in the 90s too and you edited some projects at DC right during this time like in 1995 you did vigilante covers and I think a lot of people would say you captured the western genre well and the layouts were great those Uh, were great the covers the covers on that are super memorable yeah well thank you very much I appreciate that so you did uh, still do some drawing even though you were focusing on color and directing and art directing so how did you get into those covers was it like people just needed a cover and you just filled it in or were, were you like you know i'd really like to do the covers for that how did that work i never once in all those years asked for a gig i never said hey can i i think you're doing a new batman can i do the? Co-? i refused to do that i thought that was that would be kind of shitty but uh-huh. you know i was full-time at dc so it was five days a week and it was a pretty exhausting job but people would ask me to do artwork all the time you know people who not because they saw me in the hall, but they actually liked my work. So they say, hey, Mark, you want to do this, these covers? And once in a while, I would say yes, you know, but I found it really hard to juggle both. Both jobs. Uh, yeah. So you yeah, turned yeah. down a lot of stuff. I mean, is there anything where somebody asked you to do a cover that you wish you had done it? Yeah, I did, um, I did a series of covers for this book called Johnny Double that Vertigo put out. Yeah, I love those. And Eduardo, it was Eduardo Riso's first American comics that he drew. And I think it was four, four or six issues, four or six covers. And Axel Alonso, who was the editor, really, I've already go at the time, really liked them a lot and asked me, he said, hey, uh, Eduardo Riso really likes your stuff too. He's doing a new book with Brian Azzarello called 100 Bullets. We'd love for you to do the covers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, 
Uh, yeah, awesome. What's it about? Well, they have a hundred issues planned, and I was like, "Whoa, hundred <laughs> issues and a full time job." And so I said, "I'd love to do it, but I just can't. I just can't pull it off. It's too much." And I recommended Dave Johnson for the gig, and Dave, who's like eighty times better an artist than I am from a business standpoint, I made the right decision. But I am kind of jealous that I turned it down because it would have been a really fun job to have. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And there's other covers, right? Terminal City covers. In both series, you, you had provided covers for both both series of that. And the architecture was awesome. Johnny Double covers. Um, you had great camera angles, cinematic. So are, are, are movies, like cinematography and movies, does that factor into your layouts of these of covers? I would probably say yes. I'm a big movie nut. I think, you know, the stuff we watch, the movies that we watch, the TV shows we watch, they all make such an impression on us. And I like to tap into that as a, you know, as an artist, I like to tap into that. You know, I'll watch a, I'll watch a Netflix show that's awful, but the cinematography is usually really good. And you'll say, oh my God, look how beautiful that shot is. I think most artists are like that, you know, from Frank Miller to Kinsale to to Mike Mignola, we're all, we're all moving nuts. Moving nuts, yeah. And I just want to say, it's not just like cinematography, but I, I, in looking at that Johnny Double and, and some of the other things that you do, I see some Saul Bass influence as well. Oh, I love Saul Bass. Yeah, I, I just, I'm such a big fan. There was a German artist named Ludwig Holwein, who I really love his stuff. He, he unfortunately worked, worked during the Nazi days, and his imagery was gorgeous. You know, and he wasn't a Nazi, but you know that really influenced me quite a bit. His work. I see. Uh huh. Oh, that's interesting. So now, turning to Batman, Batman seems to be very linked with your career at DC. So, tell us about starting the Batman Black and White books in 1996. You know, I'd be working at DC, and I'd be the art director, and I was, you know, overlooking a lot of the art, picking young, you know, meeting young artists, and getting new talent, and everything that the job involved it was a full time job, but. Paul Levitz or, you know, or Dan DiDio would every now and then they'd say, Hey, you know, we want you to edit something. Why don't you come up with a special project? Right. Um, so I pitched this book. I figured I was a really big fan of the old black and white, creepy and eerie, you know, the Warren stuff. Yep. Which Jim mentioned earlier, the Ditko stuff. You know, I, I really love anthologies and I'm dumb enough to think that everybody loves anthologies. So I figured, okay, so if you have an anthology and you have, the greatest character ever in comics, Batman, and you hire the best artists and writers, it's got to be a hit. It's just, it's a no-brainer. Right. And I pitched it to Paul, and Paul was like, well, you know, we don't really have success with black and white comics. And I think the one they had done previously was, the most recent one was a John Byrne, I want to say Omac black and white. Yep. Series. Yeah. Yeah. There's four issues of that, yeah. Yeah, and John, who's, you know, who's an incredible artist has an incredibly big following it sold good for you know it's it's so good because john's reputation carried it along but it didn't sell what they wanted it to sell right so like a, like a moron i went and pleaded and cried and, you know and, and told paul levitz i was i would wash his car for a year and stuff and huh. you know and he finally acquiesced and he he let me do it and it became a popular incredibly successful series yeah they, you know, we eventually did, uh, started doing statues, Batman black and white statues through DC collectibles, and they just did their 100th. I'm pretty proud of that. And all of the great artists and writers I got to work with, that's really, man, that's one of the highlights of my life for sure. Yeah, it's great. And you also edited Batman Ego by Darwin Cook and 
that was Darwin's first major work. Is that is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. I'll tell a long story really, really quickly, if I may. Yeah. Uh, I would, uh, in the mornings, I'd go have cup coffee with a good friend of mine, Scott Peterson, who was working in the Batman office. He was, he and Denny O'Neill worked together. So I'd sit with Scott in the morning. We'd have coffee. I'd buy him a coffee, and I'd go sit and chat. And I bought him a coffee and one more. And he had, in the corner of his office, he had this stack of manila envelopes that was literally five feet tall. It was just jammed, you know, it was just, like if you looked at it, it would have it would have fallen over. It was so many. I said, "What's all this crap?" And, and, well, those are submissions. It's my mom to be the guy who goes through our submissions. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "But I just can't bring myself to do it." He's like, "Why don't you take them?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm gonna." It, there were all those, you know, those Manila envelopes, and towards the very bottom was a black envelope. And I said, "Hey, watch this," you know. And I, you know, that trick where the magician pulls the tablecloth off of the table, and all the the plates and glasses stay where they were. Right. Oh, you did that with the black envelope? I did that with the black envelope. I pulled it and all of the, all of those submissions, all those envelopes went flying all over his office. <laughs> and he to pick those up and I ran out of the office with my black envelope as a joke. <laughs> and I got back to my office and I actually, I'm not making this story up, it's I, I, verbatim, it, I swear it happened. So I sat in my office with this black envelope and I opened it up. Oh, I wonder what this is. And most submissions you get at Marvel and DC and the big companies, they're really not that great. You know, they're always earnestly drawn and, but there's not much talent there. And this was, this was was this incredible pitch for a Batman story that had illustrations, you know, um, pitch illustrations and, you know, and the synopsis for the story. And I literally sat there and read it and I looked around the office, like, how is this possible? This is incredible. (laughs) So I looked at it and it it had the guy's, name and phone number and it was some guy named some guy in Canada named Darwin Cook. So I picked up the phone and I called this guy Darwin Cook. And I got him and he was really kind of like or he was sort of like a bit surprised that someone was calling him from DC. Mm-hmm. And I said I you know, I want to publish this thing. Uh, you know, I'd have to run it your channel, but I think we'd go for this. Would you want to do it? And he said, Oh shit, I just he said, I'm moving to California like in two weeks. I just took a job with Bruce Tim at Warner Brothers Animation to work on the Batman cartoon. Uh, he said, but when I'm done, I would really love to do it. So, well, you know, that's what happened. He went and worked with, with Bruce, with the genius Bruce. And, uh, and then we did Ego right after that, when he got back. Ah, uh, that's awesome. And did you, so you realized right away how good he was, it sounds like. Man, you knew it, dude. You knew it right away. You know, his, you know, people love his artwork, but, and I worked, I ended up working with Dora on quite a few projects, but to me, you know, I love his artwork too, but I think he's even a better writer than an artist. I think he's one of the great, great, great writers in, in comics history. I really, really do. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about New Frontier in a few minutes because yeah. it's one of my favorite superhero books of all time. So let's see. Now, Batman Hush, you know, that was in the issue 608 to 619 in 2002. It has its own animated movie now. You introduced Loeb and Jeff Loeb and uh, Jim Lee together and got it started. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. I, um, they knew each other. They were both really big shots in the comics industry. And uh-huh. um, they knew each other. And God, it's a long story. I apologize. Um, That's okay. We love long uh, stories. And by the way, I'm still speeding on coffee, so I know I'll speed for the story. Uh, <laughs> you know, DC... Warner Brothers bought 
Firestorm. Jim came over, you see him, Warner Brothers, and did Jim's incredible job, you know, running stuff and, and uh, you know, all the, the many hats that Jim was wearing and does wear. But, I, you know, being friendly with Paul Levitz, I knew that Paul really wanted Jim to also draw for DC. You know, he wanted him to be a, in managerial, but he also wanted, and as an art director for a lot of stuff, but he also wanted Jim to draw some stuff. Uh-huh. But Paul felt he, you know, I guess, and I may be totally reading, I've always read into this, but I think Paul never wanted to actually ask Jim to do it, you know, so, hey, could you also draw for us, too? You know, I, for some reason, he just didn't want to go there. I don't know uh-huh. why. Uh-huh. You could figure out the psychology of that, I'm sure. So, like an idiot, one day, I, you know, I come out to California once in a while to do business, and I found myself in, I was having lunch with Jeff, who I had worked with through Tim Sale. I was having, I was having breakfast with Jeff, and I we had a great breakfast. We were chatting. And I said, man, I got to tell you, I was talking to Jim Lee and he just reveres your work. He thinks you're the best writer in comics. He would, he said he would love to do something with you, but he, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of like shy about it. He doesn't want to ask you, you know, uh-huh. and you sort of see, you sort of saw it on Jeff's face. Hmm, interesting. Because yeah. Jim Lee is Lee, right? And then like four hours later, I was in Jim's office when I was in uh, La Jolla, San Diego at Wildstorm before they moved, I was in Jim's office talking business and I said, you know, and by the way, what I said to Jeff was bullshit. I, I never talked to Jim about <laughs> I just right. I just thought I'd be, you know, Machiavellian and, and you know, I am Sicilian, so that kind of goes. Um, yeah. You know, and I did the same exact thing to Jim. I said to him, hey, you know, Jeff Lowe really loves your stuff. They both stopped for uh-huh. it and my work there was done. You know, they, they got like, I think they had like four issues in the can before they even started publishing the book. It was really, it uh-huh. was really kind of cool. It, I'm real proud of that because that is cool. You know, at that time, people were so really questioning whether comic books periodicals were going to exist because everybody wanted to do graphic novels and special format stuff. And I love comics. You know, I love the periodicals. I hope they're always around. And I was, I'm really proud of that. Jim and Jeff's Hush book really kind of reinvigorated the monthly comic book to a right. degree. Right. There's a lot of excitement about that story. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot of, you know, a lot of artists and writers said, wow, that's cool. I want to, I want to draw comics. Too. I want to write com- regular comics too. Yeah, that's right. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to go off script for a couple of minutes and just sort of nerd out on a few things I wanted to ask you and then get back on track. Can we talk about Alex Toast for a few minutes? Sure. Because he, you were actually friends with him, weren't you? Very good friends, yeah, for about 15, 16 years. Yeah, see, that's special. I mean, you know, because not everybody has, certainly doesn't have that duration of friendship with him. Talk about that. How did, when did you guys become friends? Right after college, uh, George Brand, who I've mentioned, said to me, uh, he knew I was a toast nut because he was too. And we, you know, oh, did you ever see this comic? Did you ever see that comic? George said, you know, you can write to Toth. He lives in California and he loves corresponding with people. He's not big on the phone, but if you write him a letter, I bet you he would write you back. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my God, really? So I wrote a letter. I wrote this, you know, this ridiculous fanboy, you know, dear Mr. Toth, you're God. And I worship, you know, I, I'm sure it was awful, but he wrote back to me on a postcard. He was really notorious for his postcards. He would write, in really small print on the back, really this very neat print on the back of the postcard. And he wrote, uh, I really liked your letter. I'm sure I'd love to correspond with you. Let's, you know, send me another 
long letter, kiddo, and we'll chat about stuff. And wow. It was it was a good friendship. I mean, it really, you know, yeah, Alex is really famous for being kind of bipolar and, you know, turning on his friends eventually, which happened to me to a degree. Mm-hmm. But I had, a, I had a lot of good years in there. He would do the coolest thing. If he sent you a postcard, if you, you know, you got a postcard in the mail, which I have, I saved. I have all of them. I have hundreds of them. But he'd write you letters, too, and he'd write it on, a, on stationery. And what he would do is he always kept a sketchbook, but like, like the kind your mom has, just like smaller white paper that you rip a page out and you send it. So he would he would have dozens of those that he would just all day long, he would sit and sketch in and draw, do these drawings. And so when he would send me a letter in an envelope, he would take, you know, five, 10, 20 of those pages and fold them and put them in with the letter. Uh, so I've got, I've got, Jesus, I'd say, I'd say 300 of those sketch pages. Uh-huh. Um, I put them in a portfolio and I looked, I looked through this portfolio and I'm just like, how lucky was I that I knew this guy? Right. You know, like my artistic hero. I, I was friends with this guy. Yeah. Wow. He's the best. I mean, he's, he's my favorite of, I mean, I, he's just the most interesting, innovative one. And, you know, I wish he had a bigger following. Have you ever thought of doing anything with that, with that work, making it accessible to other people? You know, I have a pal down in North Carolina, a guy named John Hitchcock, also corresponded with him. And he, John did put a book together of all the sketches he had. And I thought about it. And one of my very best friends, a guy out here named Ruben Procopio, sweetest guy on the planet. He was really, really, really good friends with Toth because he lived in the same town. So he would go take Toth groceries and they were, they were incredibly close. And when Alex passed away, Alex had, so I remember, going, I'm sorry, I'm back up for a second. I remember going over, I, I would go visit Alex once a year after San Diego con, I would drive up to LA and then go spend the day with Alex. And it was, it was nine, 10 hours sitting on his couch. Just oh, that's cool. It was like, Oh my God, you, you're sitting with God. It was bizarre. And you know, and he was really knowledgeable about every topic under the sun. And I remember one time he had this portfolio by the side of this table, his house, he lived in the Hollywood Hills, this gorgeous house, but it, he had one of those, por- you know, those portfolios that are sort of like boxes, you know, like they're, yeah. they're rectangular, right. but there's the hinges and you open the top and the top opens up. Mm-hmm. He had this art portfolio, like leaning against the coffee table. Like, and the first four or five times I went, I kind of kept eyeballing it and it always stayed in the corner on the table. And one day I said, Alex, you know, I, I really want to look in that portfolio. Let me look. And he laughed. And he said, yeah, go ahead. And he had all this stuff in the portfolio that was never published work, you know, stories that he had started and drawn maybe four pages of and then given up on or stuff that no one had ever seen. And it was just, it was really cool to look through. And, you know, and I, when I was done, I put it away and I thanked him. But when he passed, Ruben got that portfolio and he still has it to this day. And Ruben and I always talked about, man, we should publish that stuff because we're both still very close friends with Alex's kids and I'm sure they would let us do it and the profits would go to them, obviously. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, I would I love to see that. Well, I thought it would be really cool. I mean, maybe I will, you know, maybe I'll get around to it someday. I thought it'd be cool to publish that stuff in a nice, over, slightly oversight book. But then if I were to take one of those sketchbook pages and tip it in to the front of each copy uh-huh. and, you know, and sell it for more and again, the money would go to the top kids, you know, like a deluxe 
version of it. That way you'd get this cool book, but you'd also get an original Alex Toast drawing in it. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I will like start this. saving now for that. <laughs> I'll send you one for free. How's that? There you go. Uh-huh. I, would, I would take it. Wow. Yeah, I, I, you know, I would love to eventually do that. I mean, because what's going to happen to that stuff? I'm going to look through it every now and then and get a lot of joy from it and then sell it eventually. I'd rather, I'd rather people have it, you know? Yeah. I am yeah. so glad I asked you that question. That, this is so fun for me to listen to you tell this story. That's just great. A couple other I'm things. I'm glad you're a Toke fan. I love when people say Alex because so many people say Jack Kirby. Oh, yeah, but, but Toth wasn't, you know, all tied up in superheroes either. I love that story where Kirby had Toth come over for, like, a barbecue, and they sat there, and neither one of them knew at all what the other one was talking about yeah, in terms of, yeah. of their methods. Yeah, I'm sort of being, I'm sort of being, that story's being attributed to me because I did that on the, I think it was on the uh, Alex Toth documentary, uh, you know, but I kind of don't want to tell the same stories over and over again, but, man, that story <laughs> cracked me up. Yeah, I thought it's hilarious. Can you not picture Jack Kirby and Alex Toast sitting in Toast? I mean, in Kirby's backyard at the swimming pool. Can you picture those two Titans talking about comic books? Holy shit! Yeah, huge. I would like to see a reenactment of that. Just with, I mean, like, yeah, because it's such a it's it's such a a visual moment, and it, it, the fun of writing that dialogue, it would just be great. It really would. Yeah. So there's a few. A few things that came out over DC that I wondered if you had your fingerprints on to some degree, just because I thought they were such visual treats. One was after 50, after 52, the series came out, the release of the covers book, which was so well packaged. And so I normally, I wouldn't have thought I would ever buy just that book of covers, but those were magnificent week after week. Did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I was. Good friends with J.G. Jones, who when I lived in New Jersey, he lived in the next town over a week, hang out a lot. And he would always have it. He was one of those guys that one of those artists that always had a sketchbook with him, like always. And he would show me, you know, these the little sketches for he was doing. I guess it was. Well, it was 52 covers in a row, one a yeah. week for 50 for a whole year. It's amazing. God, well, it's amazing. And the amazing, the obviously, obviously, the amazing thing about that is the quality of this, of each of these covers was so, oh my God, he, he killed it. He really nailed it. And to do one a week for a year is just an impossible task. So I, uh, you know, so I called him and we, we were chatting on the phone and he said, I'm going to pitch doing a book of collecting all these covers and all your little sketches. He goes, yeah, I'd love to do that. And then like an hour later, Dan DeDio walked in my office and said, hey, we should do a book collecting all of JG's covers. And I was like, <laughs> well, that's a good idea. We'll do that. And then the editor, I and I apologize, I forget who the editor was. The next day he said, hey, we should do a book of Walt J.G.'s covers. So, again, yes, it was my idea, but I didn't take credit for it. Mm. Awesome. We've talked about Darwin a little bit, and we're going to talk about him more. But that 2014, the um, variant cover month where he did all of those, that was fantastic. I mean, those define those characters and D.C. of the period where... I fell in love with it better than anything I can think of. Was that something you had anything to do with? Yeah, I asked, I asked Darwin to do those. That was my idea. Because I was running the, for the last, I've been out of, away from D.C. From, for about six months now. But for the last, like, five years, I ran D.C.'s variant cover, variant covers, cover program. And, you know, at first it was themes like Selfie Month and 
Mad Magazine, Alfred E. Newman meets the DC Superheroes Month, you know, and I was sort of running out of ideas. And I thought, well, why don't we do Artist Month, you know, where one artist does all 25 variant covers. And Darwin was the first guy I asked, and, you know, because I just love his work. And I agree with you. I, those images are so iconic, mm-hmm. so graphically creative. And again, he did. He drew 25 covers, I'd say, maybe in a month and a half. Right. And so many of those will be in my brain, like, forever. I mean, they the same way that some of those 52 ones were. They're just so well-conceived, and they're just, they're just so solid that they don't go away. Boy, there's so many of those in that particular cover run. I mean, those, those are just fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dar- Darwin, without getting off into Darwin too much, Darwin is a really complex guy, a lot like Tote. He had his flaws as a human being, but he could be the sweetest guy you've ever met. But he could be the biggest asshole you ever met, too. You know. Mm. But, you know, look, we all have our demons. But, man, I love that guy. I miss him. You know, I think, I think he's, and you're probably getting a sense, I'm really prone to grand statements like, oh, so-and-so is the best comic book artist. I think I really, I really feel, honestly, that Darwin was the, the best writer-slash-artist of all of them. You know, of all comics history, uh-huh. uh, he understood iconics. You know, some people say, oh, he was, he was kind of retro. He wasn't retro at all. He was epic. He understood iconic imagery and iconic storytelling, and he got to the core of these characters. Look, when I, like I said, when I was a kid, I loved Marvel. Spider-Man's still my favorite character. Maybe a tie with Batman these days. But, you know, I was the Marvel nut, and I came over to work for DC, and I kind of didn't understand many of DC's characters. like. The Flash, he runs fast. Big deal. Who cares? You know? Oh, Green Arrow. Oh, yeah, he shoots an arrow. Big fucking deal. Who cares? But, man, working with Darwin on New Frontier, he showed me, he made me see the power of those characters, you know, and why so many fans love Green Lantern. I had, man, as a Marvel fan, give me the Hulk, give me Captain America, give me the Fantastic Four. I just didn't understand Green Lantern. But, man... I totally get Green Lantern now because of Darwin, because he he understood it. In a single panel, he could make you like Wonder Woman if you had never appreciated that character in your whole life. And he would draw her on that table. And suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, she's badass. I suddenly get Wonder Woman or that panel where Robin is jumping up and down while Batman's talking to to Superman. And it's like, that's Dick Grayson. Yeah, he had such an incredible instinct about it. It's just amazing. Well, he had respect for these characters. You're absolutely right. He had respect for these characters. He didn't want to shit on these characters and make Green Lantern an alcoholic. Right. Oh, yeah. Let's retrofit the back history of these characters. He always went to the core of the creation of the characters. Mm-hmm. Right. Flash year. running to Vegas because of Captain Cold, and he just, that's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, and he based that Captain Cold on Grant Morrison, by the way. If you look closely, it's Grant Morrison. Huh. No, really? <laughs> oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's, that is cool. Yeah. But I loved working with him. I really, man, you know, I really loved working with that guy. I had called him. Not that long ago, I guess a year, year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever it was. We had talked, I had come up with an idea, one of my cookie ideas for a project. And he loved it years ago. He loved it. He really wanted to do it. He thought it was a brilliant idea, great idea. We were going to do it. Then we had this really big fight. We had this really big falling out. Again, because Darwin was Darwin, you know, and hmm. and I'm perfect. So I'm sure it wasn't my fault. But, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, he really wanted to do it. And then we had that big fight. So we 
So I forgot it for like three years, four years, whatever it was. And then about a year and a half ago, we had, we made up, you know, we became friends again and everything was cool. And about a year and a half ago, I called him and I said, Hey, time to do that Batman book we talked about. And I apologize. I'm getting a little emotional about it, but you know, he said, uh, you know, I can't. And I was kind of like, what do you mean you can't? Come on. It's a great idea. And I got a little, I got a, I didn't show it to him on the phone, but I got a little pissed off and like, well, why the fuck not? Come on, man. You know? Right. And he's like, I just, I just can't do it. I really want to do it. I can't do it. And, you know, and then, you know, the next like three days later, he called me back and he told me oh, why he couldn't do it, why he couldn't do it. You know, because of medical. I, I, apologize. I apologize. I'm getting a little emotional here, but yeah, because he was, he knew what was going to happen to him. Yeah. Wow. Whew. Well, all right. <laughs> that, yeah. That's hard. Boy, I just brought down the room. No, that's okay. I mean, it, I like the backstory. I think Jim does too. I think everybody knows that loss. I mean, you know, I mean, and you knew it personally, but comics knew it because he was, he was, he was the, for, I think a whole generation, he's that guy that, you know, that, that maybe older people had with Kirby or with Steranko at some point or with, with different people. Cook was that guy. He was that level and you don't get those very often. Very um, rarely. Very rarely. Right. So you'll see artists, you know, you'll see artists and writers who are who were as are as talented as him. But there was something special. Like, look, Adam Hughes. I always say he's the best draftsman I've ever worked with. The guy can draw anything. But there was something just. You're right. There was something that was a throwback to Jack Kirby with Darwin. Mm-hmm. Well, you on those Hughes covers that he did for Wonder Woman, especially. You look like you were having such a good time with him on on those. They were fun, yeah. They were fun. I was at um, I was at a convention. I was at Sheldon Drum's great convention in uh, in Charlotte, Heroes Con, and uh, what years ago? And I always wanted to work with Adam Hughes because I loved his stuff. And there's that. Oh, there's Adam over there. I'm going to go talk to him. And I was like, um, excuse me, we don't know each other, you know. But he he knew who I was, you know. And and I said, I'd love for you to draw some covers for me at DC. And he kind of like that could be fun. I I'd like to do that and. Well, you know, he said, well, what character are you thinking of? And I said, well, how about Wonder Woman? And man, you could see he couldn't contain his glee that I asked him to do Wonder Woman because huh. that's what he wanted to ask to do, right? Right. But I'm not dumb. That's what people want to see. People want to do the Adam Hughes, the beautiful women, beautiful, strong, heroic women. And nobody mm-hmm. does that like Adam. Mm-hmm. No, and Wonder Woman had the most incredible between... Bolton to Jones to him. I mean, like there was a run of like years and years where Wonder Woman covers just had one brilliant cover artist after another doing long, really long runs on it. That was amazing. And his stand up to anybody's for sure. You know, just mentioned the, the Bolin covers were great and Phil Jimenez is a great Wonder Woman cover artist and Nicola Scott. They all tell next to Adam Hughes when it comes to drawing one When I interviewed Steranko, when he was talking about modern artists, he singled out Adam Hughes as someone that he always keeps his eye on, that he really finds his artwork interesting. So so it sounds like that's a sounds like there's something special there for sure. There really is. And you know, and Jim Jim I would always like when I was working on Wonder Woman, I would always send Jim Steranko, who's a pal, I'd send him, you know, tear sheets of Adam's Wonder Woman stuff like, check this dude out, you know? Yeah. Jim's a real scholar when it comes to the history of illustration. He said, man, Mark, this guy's as good as anybody. I mean, think of 
think about that. He's who were the great, 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 great draftsmen in comics history? Draftsmen right. in comics history. Uh-huh. Frank Rosetta, you know, Brian Bolland, you know, Adams as good as any of them in the realm of illustration, especially, right? Yeah. Well, thank you, Mark, for this riveting interview here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. We'll be back next time for part two of the Mark Chiarello interview with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Cheers. Cheers.